Welcome to How My Country Works with your host, Stephen O'Shea. Next up, in North America, with the capital Ottawa, a population of 38 million and functioning as a parliamentary democracy, is Canada. On October 30th, 1991, the citizens of the Canadian province of Quebec went to the polls to vote on whether to remain part of Canada. The predominantly French-speaking region has had a complicated past with the predominantly English-speaking rest of the country, and proved as much in the vote. Despite the huge turnout, the vote was razor-thin, and the independence movement was defeated by less than 1%. Since then, independence for Quebec has lessened, but the incident demonstrates the interesting relationship the country has between its national and regional layers. In order to dive a little bit deeper into this, and the historical and political climate of Canada, I'm joined on the show by Dimitri Anastakis, Professor of History at Toronto University. Dimitri, welcome to the show. Well, it's uh, my pleasure to talk about this stuff. You know, a lot of people have an image of Canada as kind of the great white north, the country above America that, you know, is America's little brother. Uh, but it has a pretty fascinating beginning and a pretty fascinating evolution. I bet. Well, maybe we should start by chatting about some of that history and how Canada actually comes to be. Really, uh, Canada, where it comes from, it is the product of uh, really four great influences. You know, Indigenous Canada, Turtle Island, as the Indigenous peoples refer to North America, we live in the northern half of Turtle Island. Uh, Many of uh, your listeners will understand that aspect. And the Indigenous influence was here before colonization, which is the second great kind of impact. And colonization occurred first with the French Empire coming to Canada in the 1600s to get furs, for fur pelt hats. And then uh, the British also came in the 1600s. And those three influences, the Indigenous, the French, and the British, really were uh, formative in shaping how Canada emerged. There were a whole bunch of you know battles for empire across North America that included the American War of Independence as part of this. And eventually, uh, after 1760, it was the British who ruled in Canada up until Canada became its own independent country in 1860. Yeah, right. How fascinating. So like much of the Americas, you have an indigenous population present, but then the Europeans arrive and you have this battle between France and Great Britain over the region. Hence the language split to this day. But what's the fourth factor? We've been very much influenced by the United States. Most countries in the world are influenced to some degree, but Canada has a particularly strong connection to the United States because we live right beside it. So we're the product of really four great influences, Indigenous, French, British, and American influences in our world. That's such a good way of breaking down the country. But can we just go back to the split between British and French, though, as I think that's such an interesting element to the country? Yes, well, you know, Canada is officially a bilingual country with French and English are the two languages. And that's a direct consequence of this colonial aspect where in the 1600s, French explorers and French colonizers came to Canada to take advantage of the fur trade at the same time that the British were doing so. So uh, the all around Montreal and the Valley of the St. Lawrence, uh, up until the 1700s, there were tens of thousands of French speakers who Louis XIV had sent over to help colonize the country. And those people stayed there and retained their French language, their Roman Catholic religion, and their French customs, even after the British conquered.
conquered Canada. There was a great battle just outside of Quebec City in 1760, which really was the fate of North America in some ways, because the French lost to the British just outside the walls of Quebec City. And after that, the French fact was under the rule of the British. How fascinating. And this is all pretty much formalized in the Treaty of Paris in 1763, where the countries, along with Spain and Portugal, divide up much of the Americas. But then how does this region retain its Frenchness, as it were? Uh, the French in Quebec, what became Quebec, and also outside of Canada, really wanted to maintain their French identity. So even though there were efforts to assimilate French speakers in, in Canada, they said, nope, we're going to continue to maintain our language or our customs. And they do so and have done so up until this day, which helps to explain why Canada today is about 23 or 24 percent French speaking and probably almost one in five Canadians are bilingual. They speak both French and English. And if you want to do well in Canada in politics or in business or in government, you really probably do need to have both languages. So every prime minister for the last 50 years, no matter where they're from, uh, speak both French and English. Well, thankfully, I'm not running for government in Canada, as my French is pretty poor. So how does the country eventually become independent from the British then? Well, you know, uh, as one of the former British colonies in the 19th century, uh, we were part of the British Empire and eventually the British Commonwealth. Uh, a lot of people think of Canada as being kind of like the senior uh, British colony because we'd been part of the British Empire for a very long time. And uh, Canada's independence from Great Britain was very much a kind of incremental process. Uh, we were a colony. Uh, very much part of the feudal mercantilistic system that lasted up until the 1800s. But starting in the 1800s, there were efforts, uh, both from the British perspective and from the Canadian perspective, to have Canada become a little bit more independent and loosen that tie with the British. Part of it comes out of the American Civil War, where after the war, the United States, which wasn't exactly happy with what the British had done in terms of supporting the South, was looking for targets. And a lot of British policymakers and Canadians were saying, hey, look, you know, if Canada becomes a little bit more independent, they won't be seen as being part of the British Empire. So uh, by the 1860s, 60s, there was an effort for self-government in Canada. There had been some rebellions in the 1830s trying to get a self-government, and eventually Canadians formed their own independent state, which made sure that Canada was responsible for all of its domestic policies, though because it was still tied to the British Empire, you know, allowed the British to control a lot of the foreign policy. Interesting. That's kind of a system we've seen the British use across many of the other countries around the world. This incrementalism is also rather interesting. What leads to full independence then? That changes after the First World War. You know, like a lot of these other British dominions, Canada sends a lot of troops to help fight during the First World War. 60,000 Canadians die on the battlefields of France. And as a consequence of that, many Canadians are, are thinking that Canada should have its own independent foreign policy as well. So after the First World War, Canada signs the Treaty of Versailles, and in the 1920s, it becomes completely responsible for all of its affairs. So it was a really incremental kind of step-by-step -step process that other nations uh, followed in the British Empire as well. Yeah, right. Can you just explain how the system operates, though, in this independent state, like between the provinces and national authorities? 
Yes, so uh, Canada was probably the world's second federal state uh, after the United States. And we have one of the oldest written constitutions because it goes back to 1867. And it is one of those dynamics where you have a central government based in Ottawa, and then we have 10 provincial governments plus three territories. Three of the territories are in the north, and they're very much indigenous territories. One of them is Nunavut, which is the newest territory, which came to be in, in uh, 1999. It was carved out of the Northwest Territories. And the, the relationship is like a lot of federal states, where they divvy up who's responsible for what laws or areas of jurisdiction and influence. So, you know, there are differences between how federalism in Australia works and how federalism in the United States works and how federalism in Canada works as well. Like what? So a great example of the difference between federalism in Canada and the United States, and one of the reasons that Canada, as it emerged in the 1860s, right in the wake of the United States Civil War, they wanted to do things a little bit differently than what the Americans had done, because they were worried that at some point you'd have this kind of breaking up of the system. So uh, while a lot of the responsibilities are similar in terms of, you know, the federal government gets control of big economic issues or banking or finance or immigration, one of the key differences is that in Canada, the federal government was responsible for the justice system and the criminal code, the criminal law. So a great example that your listeners probably will be familiar with, like in the States, each state can determine whether or not there's the death penalty, for example, because each state is in control of the criminal law, whereas in Canada, it's federal across the whole board. So you, you don't have differences from province to province in terms of how that federalism works. That's really interesting and a great example to showcase the difference in some federal systems. So some of these provinces have significant power and they have significant leeway because a lot of big ticket items like healthcare, education, cities are under provincial jurisdiction. So the provinces have quite a bit of power. And in the case like the province of Quebec, which is very different, it's a majority French speaking province. It has its own civil law as opposed to a criminal code. It's very unique and it sticks out as a little bit different than all the other provinces. It sounds like it. Now we touched on Quebec in the intro, but could you go into that a little bit more? Yeah, so like many decolonization movements that occurred in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, in the 19 post-war period, a lot of Quebecers felt that Quebec should be its own country. I mean, they were just, they're a distinct province. They have their own language. So they've actually held two referendums on independence. In 1980, there was a referendum on whether or not they should leave Canada, and that lost 60-40. And then about 15 years later, there was another referendum, and the vote came down to, it was about 40,000 votes out of something like 5 million ballots cast. It was so close. It was 49.4, yes, let's leave Canada, to 50.6, no, we'll stay in Canada. It was such a close call uh, that a lot of Canadians felt, you know, it's only a matter of time before Quebec separates. But in fact, what happened in the 90s and the 2000s is a, a lot of things shifted. Uh, you know, the economy changed, the population of Quebec changed. A lot of people in Quebec realized that going their own was probably not the smartest thing to do necessarily. So that movement, that separatist movement has really shrunk in terms of its influence. So the main party that pushed that, the Parti Québécois, uh, used to be in government all the time. And now they're like in third or fourth place in Canada. So it's really shown a decrease in that the impetus towards that. But it was a close call. I'll tell you, Stephen, I was 25 years old at the time, and everybody was freaked out that everybody in English-speaking Canada, and a lot of people in Quebec as well, were freaked out that Quebec would leave. It was such a close call. It was probably one of the most dramatic episodes that Canadians have experienced in the last 40 or 50 years. 
Yeah, I can only imagine. It's giving me real Brexit flashbacks as a Brit. One other similarity is the fact that the Queen is still the head of state in Canada, as she is in the UK. Can you talk about this given Canada's long period of independence? Well, I'll tell you, this is a great question. I talk to my students about this all the time because, you know, at some point, our queen, uh, Elizabeth II, is going to pass on and uh, the new king, Charles, will be in place and he'll be on the money of Canada and he'll be the new king. And, you know, because she's been on the throne for 70 years and 75% of the population of Canada has ever only known the queen, a lot of people don't realize that this change is impending, that it'll happen and that there will be a new monarch. Now, I'll say this much. There isn't a big Republican sentiment in Canada. And I think one of the reasons is because having the British influence and the Queen as our head of state distinguishes us from the Americans to a large degree. I mean, it's one thing that's a pretty key difference, that we still retain these royal ties. So there are quite a few people who might say, oh, you know what, it would be great if we could change it. But I'll tell you the other aspect is, in our constitution in Canada, if you want to change the office of the Queen and the head of state, you actually need the unanimous agreement of all 10 provinces which is like having 10 siblings who hate each other and love each other uh, agreeing on one thing, and they never do. They've, you know, the, the Constitution of Canada has only ever been, it's never been unanimously changed. It's really hard to do. It's one of the most difficult things to do. So there's not a, a groundswell of support to remove the queen or to change the office, but it's also legally, I wouldn't say virtually impossible, but it's very difficult. So no matter what happens in the United Kingdom with Elizabeth and Charles and succession, Canadians will still have the monarchy as part of their system. And I think they're okay with that by and large. I think they're okay with that. It, it's more like a, a, a lack of any real desire to do it because it's just so set. Uh, you know, it's always been there. I, maybe perhaps things will change when Elizabeth does pass on. Uh, maybe a lot of Canadians will say, hey, I don't want Charles and Camilla. But uh, for now, it's one of these things that it's also very low on the agenda. Absolutely. Well, just touching on those issues, can we chat a bit about the current prime minister, Justin Trudeau? Pierre Trudeau, his father, was prime minister and probably the most dominant political figure in the post-war period in Canada from 1968 with one small break until 1984. So he was prime minister for almost 16 years. And Justin was born in 1971 when Pierre was already 51, I think. So, you know, there was a pretty large age gap. And Justin, you know, as a prime minister, a lot of Canadians have mixed feelings about him because he did come in uh, pretty uh, on a wave of sentiment. Uh, in 2015, when he was first elected as a kind of young, fresh face, even though he had a legacy uh, name. But he's he's very unlike his father. I mean, his father was a lawyer by trade, a constitutional law professor. His father created the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which is the main document around our rights and freedoms. It's the equivalent to the, the Bill of Rights in the United States. Wow. And uh, Pierre Trudeau was very much, much more of a, a thinker, a kind of a deep guy, a polarizing figure as well. And Justin is a lot different in terms of uh, his upbringing. He uh, was a teacher for a while and he, he was a ski instructor for a while and did all kinds of stuff. But they both have a stubbornness within them that I think is common to father and son and a determination. Uh, they're both committed to, very much committed to the idea of a pluralistic, multicultural Canada, which is one of their kind of key issues around how we understand ourselves. I would say that, you know, with COVID, which has been the dominating factor of everyone's lives for the last few years, uh, you know, 
Justin has done fairly well in terms of making sure Canadians get access to vaccines. Uh, but there are a lot of legitimate criticisms around him in terms of some of his policies, some aspects that he's done. You know, he legalized cannabis, which we were the first G7 country to do so. But at the same time, he's really fallen down in terms of the regionalism of the country. Uh, Canada is a very regional country, and he has virtually no support in the West, where uh, you know there's a legacy there of his father taking actions in the oil and gas sector, which really upset a lot of people, and that spilled over into Justin's own time. So it's uh, it's an interesting thing. Uh, I I don't know how long Justin will stay. I mean, uh, it's been a very taxing period for all leaders. Uh, with COVID. And his legacy will be interesting to see. I mean, I think it's, like I said, it's really difficult to kind of separate ourselves from what we're in the middle of because COVID has been so overwhelming. But I do think in 15 or 20 years, people will say that he stick handled, to use a good hockey term in Canada, he stick handled through the difficulties of COVID pretty well. But otherwise, his legacy is going to be seen as pretty uneven. Yeah, right. Thanks so much for bringing us up to date with Mr. Trudeau and Canada as a whole. But Before we let you go, could you just chat to us about a festival event or celebration that's unique to Canada? Uh, Well, you know, it's a great question. And, you know, one that comes to to mind right away is the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, which happens uh, September 30th. It's a relatively new uh, day. And it's a day of remembrance of uh, the impacts of colonization upon Canada's Indigenous peoples. It's called Orange Shirt Day in Canada, and lots of students in classrooms across the country wore an orange shirt because orange shirts became symbolic of residential schools uh, taking the clothes of Indigenous children away and forcing them to wear, you know, Western European clothing. Yeah, wow. There's so many countries that we've talked about that struggle to deal with that bit of their history. Are there any other days you'd call out? Another, uh, you know, another one uh, that uh, Canadians celebrate is Victoria Day, which is, uh, again, a kind of reflection of our colonial legacy. Uh, Canada was um, uh, first kind of uh, came together in 1867 on July 1st when Queen Victoria was the monarch. And uniquely amongst all the British countries, including the United Kingdom, Canadians uh, every May, it's the first, it's the last Monday in May before the 25th. They call it May 2-4, like a beer, you know, a case of beer, May 2-4, because it's a long weekend in May when the summer's finally kicking in. And, you know, we've been in winter for a long time. We celebrate Queen Victoria's birthday, which is completely weird when you think about it. (laughs) That is rather odd. We're desperate for an excuse to have a long weekend in May. So uh, that's that's a unique one uh, as well. And I'll tell you one other one, which is in Canada, we actually have two national holidays. We have July 1st, uh, which is not like July 4th, but that weekend for both North American countries. July 1st is the day that Canada became a new nation under the British North America Act. And on June the 24th in Quebec, they have St. Jean de Baptiste Day, which is Quebec's national celebration. And they have a big party in Quebec. And if you're a Federalist in Quebec and you like both, you'll go June 24th to July 1st. It's a great week. But if you are just a Quebecois, you'll celebrate June 24th and completely ignore July 1st, which is usually moving day in Quebec. And everybody is just moving around uh, in trucks and moving their stuff around. So a couple of unique ones there. Yeah, perfect. Thanks so much for those and for your time today. Okay. Take care, Stephen. Very nice meeting you. Well, I think that's a perfect place to end the show. Thanks so much to my guest, Dimitri Anastakis. Join us next time where we'll be discussing the African nation of the Central African Republic, which despite its wealth in natural resources, remains the second poorest country in the world. 
As always, please do write us on your podcast app and recommend us to any friends that have a hankering for political knowledge. Follow us on Instagram or Twitter at HowMyCountryWorks for extra insights and facts. And there you can message us around anything else you'd like to know about Canada or any other country. This podcast is produced by Stephen O'Shea and sound editing is by Luke Trubert. See you next time. Remember to keep asking how my country works.